for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. It's time for episode 235 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week is another special doubleheader as I talk to comics creators from the indie world and also from Star Trek. First up is Joseph Bradford, the creator of Anjali Arbitrium, a great indie comic that he makes, as well as Ellie Moonbeard and the Seekers of Shine, a sci-fi comic he's been doing, putting on a little different format, which we'll discuss. He's got a Kickstarter going on right now for that first book, which I struggle to pronounce sometimes. So if you go to kickstarter.com and look that up, you'll find it. And please be sure to go out and support it, because I think these are great books that deserve to continue on, and they deserve your support. Then we have a special interview with the creators of the Star Trek comics from IDW Publishing. That's Mike Johnson and Ryan Parrott creators of Star Trek Manifest Destiny, which recently wrapped up and is going to be coming out in trade. It's all part of the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which many of my friends are celebrating all year long. We talk about the recent comics that have come out from IDW, and we get a little hint as to what's going to happen in the future. So we need to keep our ears to the ground as to the future of Star Trek at IDW Publishing. We talk many things Trek, including their favorite versions of Trek, and we find out what things they have coming in the future. So I'm sure you're going to want to listen. There's a whole lot to get to. So let's get on with the show. want to welcome back to the podcast Joe Bradford from Tiki God Comics, who has created some great comics, including, and I always mess it up, and you'll tell me if it's wrong, Joe, if you will, Anjali uh-huh. Arbitrium. Anjali Arbitrium. Arbitrium. Okay, I knew I'd get that wrong. I always do. It's <laughs> about Latin. That just doesn't work with me. And then you've got Ellie Moonbeard and the Seekers of Shine, which I got to see last year at New York Comic Con. Uh-huh. So, all good books. So how you doing, Joe? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. Got a Kickstarter going with Anjali Arbitram right now, and we also are working right now on the second trade of Ellie Moonbeard. Great, great. Now, those aren't individual issues on Ellie coming out, right? They're coming out as trades. Yeah, we're doing it as trades right now, three issues per trade. Okay. And then I think nine issues is going to be the full arc of the full first story, so we'll do three trades total. Okay. Well, since the Kickstarter has to do with the other book that I can't uh-huh. pronounce, why don't we go ahead and start with that? Why don't you give people okay. a, a description as to what it is? Anjali Arbitram is a story of an angel who chooses a broken man to be her champion. She's trying to prove that good still exists in the world. So we've had that one out since the beginning of 2015. We have the first three issues, and they've been mostly available online. We printed the first issue as a single issue. 
but at all the comic cons everybody wants to see the first three issues together in a trade so we're uh putting the kickstarter together so we can get to all three together okay now when does the kickstarter conclude what day july 4th that's a monday right it is yeah, yeah what time of day is that I believe it's early in the morning. I think it's done at like 8 a.m., okay. I believe. So we need to get everything done before the holiday in order to be able to have a good impact on yeah. good things like that. So is this your first Kickstarter or your second? This is our second, but we did one with Ellie as well. It's a learning process, trying to get out there. And, and I think we've, as a exposure has grown definitely in the past couple of years. So we're hoping that with more people liking it, that it'll hopefully our Kickstarter support will be bigger too. Now, of course, you go to Kickstarter dot com and then you look up i'm never going to pronounce it right but you look up the name of the comic and look, you'll probably see the trade in there at listed as well make sure you do it and be sure to uh-huh. support it because we want to make sure that this comes out and do you have plans for more of this book coming out in the future i do i do i need to get this trade out and then i'm finishing up the second trade of ellie moonbeard mm-hmm. and then i'd like to start working on the next three issues of anjali arbitram after that cool and there's also a, another, if you go to tikigodcomics.com, there's a link to the Kickstarter on there as well. It'll take you directly to the page. Good, good, good. So there's multiple ways to get there, so be sure to get in there and support it. I've read all three issues, which I really liked, and I wanted to ask you about one thing, too. I actually got your comics, and this is a rare thing for me. I usually go through Comixology when I get a digital comic, but yours was out through iTunes, uh-huh. which yeah. I found interesting. Is it on Comixology as well? It's on Comixology, iTunes, and Amazon Kindle. You can get it all three ways that way. That's interesting, because usually people focus on Comixology, but not on the other two. Why was it that you went with the other ones as well? Have they performed well? I've gotten some hits on them. It just was to get it out as much as possible in as many forms as possible. You know, I didn't want anybody to say, well, I don't do that, so I couldn't pick it up. So... I figured flood the market with as many ways as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, when I first saw you, of course, you had a display at a convention that doesn't exist anymore. Your book had nothing to do with that. But yeah. it was uh, it was the fir- first and only time they had this convention. We won't mention it, but uh, you've done <laughs> other stuff since then. I saw you at New York Comic Con last year, and you're going to be back there again this year. So Yeah, we are for sure. Yeah. Have you been doing other conventions as well, or are those the ones that you focus on? New York, for sure. We did C2E2 this year. Ah. We'd like to do C2E2 again next year, and then it's kind of in flux. I'm getting married this year, and then I'm moving from New York to Las Vegas next year. So I'm not quite sure at the beginning of the year what our convention schedule is going to be, but uh, we'd really like to go back to C2E2. We had such a good time there. Oh, good. I was so. at C2E2. I don't know if I saw you there. I think we ran into each other. It was a blur. It was a great <laughs> show, though. Such a good show. That was the thing. There was a lot going on at C2E2, and there always is, because I still consider New York the big one big kahuna of the bunch yeah there's just so much going on in that convention and there's just a lot of people flowing through that all four days yeah it feels so much more comic book oriented too than san diego and same with c2e2 it felt very comic book central mm-hmm. i mean not that there's anything wrong with the movies and tv shows but it's very cool to be very comic centric and the artist alleys in both those are just amazing mm-hmm. the one in new york is so huge there's just so many talented artists there mm-hmm. They also have like a small press area. I think that's yeah, where that's you were. where we were. Yeah, uh-huh. that's right. Yeah, I was there in there helping Stabity Bunny and stuff there as well. So yeah, that's always a good thing. So well, congratulations on getting married. It's always good to to <laughs> settle you. down and uh, and then you can focus more on your comics, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the yeah. good news is is that you've gotten the books set up. You know, you've got things going with them, and the the engine is running. So is. you've got that probably down to a science by now. So when the time comes and you got to devote more time to family and stuff, you'll know what you're doing, so you don't have to worry about spending so much time on it, which will be great. Yeah, that's a big reason for the move out to Vegas. It's cheaper than New York, so I should have more time to work on actually writing and not have to work quite as much. Hopefully, I'll be good. That'd yeah. be quite nice. But, uh, so we talked some about your book the first time that we chatted. I do uh-huh. want to cover a couple of things just because I want people to know some things about the book. You've got a mm-hmm. cowboy is kind of the main guy of the book. The angel, of course, is she's kind of got things to do with him, but she's focused on him, and he tends to be the thing that the book centers around, it seems to me. Do you want to talk a little bit about that character for people who may not have heard it before? Sure. James, he's a tortured soul. He's led a really hard life. You get into that in the second issue. We go into why he is how he is and how the angel and him meet. But she was looking for a disturbed, hurt person because she wanted to show that people can change. So he's the catharsis for that change. Right now, I have to say your book kind of set the tone for something that I've seen a lot since then. And that's the notion that angels aren't necessarily enamored with humanity yeah i seem to after i saw your book i've seen it in supernatural i've seen it in all different other kinds of places but yours was the place i saw it first i don't know if you came up with it first or great minds think alike or how that worked but probably great minds thinking alike (laughs) (laughs) because it's funny because that whole concept of the fact that angels are not necessarily well let's just say they might have a little jealousy involved with all the attention yeah. God gives to, to humanity. How did that concept hit you? Was it something that you, you, as you did some reading or something, it popped out at you? Or was it a concept you'd had for a while and got to put into the book? How did that happen? You know, I think, honestly, a little bit of it came from Balsar Galactica mm-hmm. and the idea that angels have been with humanity forever. And then I think it sprouted a bit from that, that I wanted to explore how the angels react to humans and what their battle is at the same time, like what they're fighting for. And I've also added some rules to it, like they have to choose a champion. They have to choose one person that they're going to work through instead of trying to work through multiple people. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting because, as you were saying, it just dawned on me that if you believe in the Bible, Lucifer was an angel, and he fell from grace because he wanted the place that God had or that Jesus had. You were one of those in there. So Mm -hmm. angels aren't necessarily as perfect as some of us might like to think they are. Yeah, my views on organized religion definitely take me away from the angelic superior being thoughts. And the angel makes references to that, that the Bible says, and she goes, well, the Bible was written by men, not God. So mm-hmm. I think that angels are our interpretation, and this is my interpretation of what an angel is, mm-hmm. or would be. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Now, one of the other things about the book I think people should know is that it's black and white. You've got color-painted covers, but the inside is black and white. And honestly, once I started to read it, I completely forgot that. You know, I was lost in the story so much that I didn't realize it was black and white. You know, it's one of those stories that engages you so well that you don't notice things like that when you get into it. You want to see what's going to happen next, so you're turning the page. Mm-hmm. So, as I remember, you were talking about the fact that uh, it was largely a financial reason, although it turned out that the art really worked with the story, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I wanted to go black and white from the beginning, and it was financial, but after looking for black and white artists Kay just hit me as the one his style just really fit very well what I wanted to say 
And I think he embraced the darkness so well. His inks are so heavy. And uh, I have all the originals now. He sent them to me. I framed a couple of them. They're just incredible pieces of art. So So I remember it was kind of a neat experience when you finally saw all this story in your head get down onto the page and then into uh, into a comic. It's the best. It is the best. I imagine it's what screenplay writers who also direct feel like when they finally make something make it happen physically and you can actually see your idea coming to life it's amazing mm-hmm. now as i remember when i bought the third issue from itunes it was a larger issue yeah i think the last one is 30 pages right. i want to say yeah so it ends up really interestingly and you're right it's set up in such a way that you can continue on with it uh-huh. as well as it's done so i always like a story like that i like a story that has a conclusion to some degree but then also has the ability to move forward if you want to yeah. And I think you do that really well. I think that the characters are nicely established. You've got a bad guy who is just a rotten no good all the way through, in my opinion. <laughs> He's an ultimate villain. If there ever was a demon, he probably could have been one of them. That's yeah. bad guy. Do you, do you want to talk about him a little bit? Yeah, he's nameless in the first couple issues, I believe. And then he works through a human as well. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, the boy who's in the book as well is connected to the human that the demon is working through. Mm-hmm. So everything's connected. And the angel and the bad guy work off each other and are kind of drawn to each other. And they choose champions that are connected. They may not have done it on purpose, but it's just how it happened. Mm-hmm. And he has his own agenda for sure. And his agenda is to show that humanity is doomed and there's no point to trying to save it. Mm-hmm. Which is what makes him a darker character. Yeah, yeah. Than her. It's always interesting to me that the angel who believes in humanity is a female. I oh, would, yeah. I always thought that was something interesting because usually angels are usually male and when they're represented but this one being a female i have to say it though there's something about guys we will tend to abandon ship if things start to go really badly but a woman will stick with things if she really believes in what's going on a lot longer than many of us men will yeah so i think that was a perfect choice to have her be the angel and i think women also represent life a lot more they give life they're the peaceful ones most of the time so i think she probably fit that ideal a little bit better now, if you, when you get on to the second set of issues, same artist? That's the plan, yeah. Okay. Same artist. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys worked so well together, it made the first to really shine. So I yeah, yeah. keep that going if you at all can. So the Kickstarter is now going on until July the 4th. Now's the time to get out there and support it. Don't wait. Get out there and make things happen and support this great book. If you like indie comics that tell stories that you probably won't see in regular comics, and I use the regular in quotes, then this is a book that you're going to want to get out there and support. And so I highly recommend it. Get there, get the Kickstarter, and get your money in there. And you've got good prizes and benefits for folks who support. So, you know, there's a lot of good things and a lot of good reasons to support this book. So once again, I say get out there and do it because it certainly deserves it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're really proud of the book. I just want to get into as many people's hands as I can. Mm-hmm. It'll be great. And also, since you're going to be on the East Coast only probably the rest of this year, we probably better make an effort to see you at the conventions because who knows if you'll make it to New York next year or not. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's hard to <laughs> I, know because once you go on the West Coast, people tend to focus on San Diego or Emerald City's tend to be a big one now. Yeah, I'd like to go there. They're owned by the same people who do C2E2 and New York Comic Con now. So we've been talking to them. We wanted to go this year. It just didn't quite work out for us. Wow. Well, you'll be closer. It'll be a lot cheaper. 
Yeah. That's the yeah, case. Yeah. So that'll be good. So very good. Now, why don't we talk about the other book that you've got, Ellie Moonbeam. Do you want to discuss what the story is basically going on with that? Ellie Moonbeard and the Seekers of Shine is a story of uh, a young lady who travels around the galaxy with her father. She's looking for lost treasure, and that's the Shine. And it starts out with them. They're heading to a planet where they've gotten a clue uh, about some lost treasure, and the treasure they find is not what they expected. Now, this is color, interestingly enough. It is. We wanted this one for kids, so we really wanted to go. We call it the Pixar model. We wanted it to be accessible to kids and adults. We wanted something that... I have nephews and nieces who wanted to see my comic book, and my partner, Scott, he's got kids, and they wanted to see what we were making. And so we decided we wanted to go kind of 180 from where we were and make a really age-appropriate book. So it's usually like 8 to 14 is the range, but most of the adults who've read it have loved it, too, so we hope everybody likes it. Yeah, I got to read it last year at New York, and I really liked it, too. It is very different from the other book, which, but you know, I always think good writers can do that, I, just like, like you do. You don't have to stick to one genre or one kind of writing. You can make things shine no matter what you take on. I think that's a good thing for this book. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and the artists we got, too, are just amazing. Nico, he did the cover, and that's kind of when we knew he was for us, and... He did all the pencils, and he's an animator. A lot of the time he does a lot of animation work, so it's got that animated feel. And then he recommended Brittany Peer to be our colorist, and the colors just fly off the page. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a thicker book, of course. The other ones, your previous book came out in individual issues, and now the trade's about to come out. This comes out, you've got three issues in this book each time, Correct. right? That's the plan, yeah. Every trade with three issues. Right, right. So that'll be good because it's good to kind of keep those things going. I, I'm coming to feeling that maybe individual issues are not necessarily the way to go anymore. But the bad news is if you make it too expensive, then people don't want to invest all the money into a story. But these days, when we've done conventions, if you can do it like a trade for 10 or $15, a lot of people will spend the money. Yeah, they'll check it out. We really had to figure out our price range, but I think we were a little high when we first started in New York, and we've come down a bit, and that's really helped us out. At C2E2, we did very well, and I think it's also that we have a book that kids can read. You see so many kids walking through a convention, and comics are hit or miss whether they're acceptable for kids to read, and so we really try and push that when we're at the convention. Mm-hmm. And again, you've got a female lead, which mm-hmm. I always like, so that was great to... You and the female leads, you really like those, so that's a good... I'm happy to see that, because I firmly believe that there's plenty of white males in charge of comic books, on several levels. (laughs) Yeah. So it's nice to see a woman, a female, in charge, or the story revolving around her. So I always like that. I think that's just a great thing about it. So I like that. We definitely discussed having diversity, and I look at the crew of The Lovely Lady, the ship in the book, and we have a blue alien... A Filipino guy who dresses like Elvis and Ellie, the girl who's the lead of the book. And I really wanted to make it as diverse as possible. And and as we keep going through it, we add more aliens and more diversity as as much as possible. I've got to ask, just because not when you said it, it reminded me of it. An Asian guy that dresses like Elvis. It's his thing. He loves Elvis. (laughs) Was this inspired by anybody in real life or it just happened in your imagination? (laughs) How did you get that? Where did this guy come from? I am a huge fan of the King. I love Elvis Presley, and so I wanted to put him in somewhere. And just thinking about where I could fit him in, and I thought, as a ship's crew member, I thought it'd be great. If I remember correctly, Babylon Five had a group of Elvi, as I used to call them, would walk through the station occasionally. Oh yeah, I've never seen that show. Oh, there was a whole convention. There was a whole 
group of them there was on this space station and all these people dressed like Elvis walked through the station at one point. Huh. And, you know, you might want to watch that just to see that scene, if, if nothing else. I will, yeah. You know, kind of. There's another book, a book called Fool's Company by mm-hmm. Robert Asprin, and he has a Elvis priest, the Church of Elvis. Who, uh, <laughs> and I, I, did, I think that Elvis, the Ellie Moonbeard book is set a uh, thousand years in the future. So I just wanted to say that the king will still be around a thousand years from now. I remember when he passed, my sister, who was about 10 years older than I am, when his, he passed, she was depressed for a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she just she couldn't believe what the world would go on without him. So it was. A, there's still a lot of folks who feel that way. And so you're touching an audience there, I think. That'll be something <laughs> to go forward with that. So you did the first issue last year, and this year you're going to have the second issue because you're doing three at a time. It takes some time to accumulate all that good stuff. You know, all the work it done. does. It does, yeah. And Brittany, who does the colors, and Nico both, they're so busy. We just kind of have to find the time to make it happen. So we're hoping to have the second one out by New York Comic Con as well. So this will be print versions? Print versions, yep. Okay, that'll be good. Yep. That'll be great. So that'll be good. And the trade by then, hopefully? Yeah, I mean, both Ellie Moonbeard 2 and Anjali Arbitram 1, we'd like to have both of those by New York Comic Con. We're working very hard. It depends a little bit on the Kickstarter. Right, but of course. Because, you know, without the money, it's hard to do the book. It is. We're a small company, and we're self-funded. So once you add art, and we pay our artists, they don't work for free. Mm-hmm. So trying to just make it happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm hoping to be there too. You'll have to say one of each of those for me when I get there, because I'd like to have sure. them. You can sign them and stuff. Because all good stuff. It's really, really great things. The second issue. Where does the second issue? Can you do like a little bit of a launch off point? If you read the first issue, where does the second issue go? Of After? Ellie. Yeah. The second trade starts pretty much exactly where we left them. They've jumped to hyperspace at the end. Mm-hmm and are heading for the main planet of the galaxy, Nexus. Mm -hmm. And we pick up with them landing on Nexus, and they're going to the medical facility with the boy that they find Mm -hmm. and uh, are getting him checked out. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Ellie's mom is performing on Nexus, so she has to go see her mom, Mm -hmm. and the bad guys are still following them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the story continues. The story continues, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a serial version, like pretty much right where we left off, we pick them up again. Mm -hmm. Do you have an end in mind for Ellie, or is this kind of an ongoing thing? I'd like it to be ongoing. I have an end to the arc that we're in, basically the end of the story of the boy they find. We get most of the answers to where he comes from mm-hmm. in the first nine issues. And then after that, the sky's the limit. I mean, they're treasure hunters, so they can find adventure wherever they go. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's different. The first one is sort of supernatural fantasy horror kind of stuff. This is uh-huh. much more sci-fi. It is. It's very sci-fi. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And when we were discussing, me and Scott came up with the idea of Ellie, we were kind of decide where we wanted to go. And we thought, let's take our love of science fiction and, and give that to kids as well. Give them an accessible place for it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always a good idea to encourage kids to go. I just wrote a column on Major Spoilers where I, I write and where the podcast appears about the fact that a lot of people have read comics for a lot of years and they don't understand why the focus is changing some. Instead of having Superman be an ultra-moral guy, mm-hmm. he's darker and he gets angry occasionally and some things, uh, incarnations, he actually becomes sort of a bad guy. Yeah. And people ratch about that and say how terrible that is because they've been reading books for 40, 50 years and Superman's never done that. But if the industry wants to continue, all of us won't be around here another 40, 50 years. And so what they need to do is draw some new people in. 
So I think that what you're doing is the way of the future, that uh, the stories you're telling and the, you're appealing to uh, audiences that's pretty broad range of people. And I think that's what comics have to do in order to survive. So I'd rather see Superman be a little different. I can read Superman a little darker, saying Injustice, than opposed to his regular monthly title. You know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be the same. I think that you have, like, Frank Miller and The Dark Knight Returns. You have plenty of room for everybody's imagination to take a different take on a character. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but even the movies, you have to accept that it's other people's interpretation of the character, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. You have to allow people to experiment with these characters. I think it's hard because you have people like Superman, Batman, or characters like that that are so defined. And I think that's where indie comics and people like Image, who are putting out these great, unique, new ideas that can become your new characters, your new mythology. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you bring that subject up and it makes me think your stuff would lend itself very well, especially Ellie would lend itself to like a Saturday morning cartoon. We've definitely talked about doing that. Like I said, Nico is an animator, and we've we've come up with a uh, a screenplay for a uh, pilot of it, and mm. we'd love to do that. We're shopping it around a little bit, but I think we got to get a little more hype behind it before we're going to get there. But yeah, it definitely lends itself to being a cartoon. It's kind of funny because the Captain Canuck comic, which comes out of Canada, the guy uh-huh. who writes the book, the comic, also writes. There's like they do little animated tales every once in a while. Uh-huh. It's just it's just so funny that he kind of runs both of those. Yeah. So there's there's some links between them, and he makes things go like that. And I, I said to him, I said, you got to realize there's a lot of comics created out there that would love to be in the position you are. Uh huh. We'd love to see nothing better than see your stuff out on the small screen. Mm-hmm. You know, have Ellie come out, and and even if you could sell the discs or something like that, and there's plenty of cartoon networks. You know, not just the Cartoon Network, but there's other networks that have cartoons on them too. I mean, even just online, there's Netflix, there's Amazon. We actually pitched at Amazon. We didn't make it through, but we tried. And Mm -hmm. I think it's the same as making even a book. It's an expensive process. So to make it happen, it's a lot of money up front. So we kind of have to balance where we're going and and stay focused on. So right now we're staying focused on getting the books out. Mm -hmm. And then maybe next year, if we have time, we'll try and look more towards the animation stuff. Well, I talked with Bob Layton at one point, and he was talking about the fact that if you had $5 to spend, would you rather buy a comic or would you rather rent a movie? Mm-hmm. And we had a long discussion about that. Your talk brings me back to that same idea in that, you know, maybe the thing to do is, is to kind of maybe keep it in the back of your mind when the situation presents itself. You can say, well, here, I've yeah. got this idea. Exactly. We just keep trying to get alley out there for people to see and read and enjoy and then like you say maybe it'll fall in the right hands one day and they're going to say well we'd really like to make this happen so that's the thing. mention it to people that's the thing you got to do every time i come into people who are interested in animation i keep noticing that they don't tell people about it and i always go like why don't you tell people about it because the only way you're ever going to get people's attention is if you let people know that you want to do that uh-huh. So hopefully this little discussion will get the word out too, and maybe somebody who's interested in animation might come your way and maybe want to fund it or something. Who knows? Yeah, it'd be great. Because it's a great story. They're great characters. You mix drama with humor real well. It's not a Long John's superhero-type book. It's a lot better in the sense that you write for the family. probably much better reading than, say, something like uh, you know, like we talked about, Dark Knight. Dark Knight's for the yeah. other folks. 
Yeah, I definitely wanted it to be something that, as a comic book fan forever and ever, and if I ever have kids or my nephew, it's something I want to be able to show them at any age and we go, here, let's read this together. Yep, it'll be good. It'll be something worthwhile. It's just the greatest thing when I keep hearing creators who have comics, who make comics, they want desperately to be able to get and do something that their kids can actually read. Yeah, I think uh, Jason Howard, he's the artist on Trees. He has something, Dinosaurs. I'm not sure. I can't remember the title of it, but I talked to him at one of the Comic-Cons here in New York, and we were talking about it, and he said, yeah, that's why I came up with that book, because I wanted something to show my kids. Mm. (laughs) That's great stuff. Well, both of them are really great books. And do me a favor, and I want to make sure the name is pronounced right. Say the name of the first book again for people. Angele Arbitram. And that's at kickstarter.com. Look that book up in the trades out there. So please get out there and support that. And if people can't get to New York Comic Con for the first or second volumes of Ellie, is there, they go through the Tiki Gods, Tiki God Comics website? Yeah, right now we have all the online options mm-hmm. if you want to read on your iPad or Kindle. Mm-hmm. But if you want an actual physical copy, if you go to tikigodcomics.com, it'll take you to a link where you can buy the book and I'll sign it for you and send it out to you. Very good, very good. Well, as always, Joe, much success because you're doing great work and I can't wait to see this stuff. I can't wait to get to New York and see the second book like that and see the trade. That's going to be fun to see all that good stuff. Thanks a lot, Wayne. Stuff. Yeah. need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne as a man from flesh and blood I can be ignored I can be destroyed but as a symbol get the latest from the comics universe news interviews previews and reviews listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics Before I begin this next interview, I wanted to mention that it was recorded prior to the tragic accident that claimed Anton Yeltsin's life. I'm sure Mike, Ryan, and the great people at IDW Publishing, including Stephen Scott, who helped arrange this interview, joined me in sending our condolences to his family, friends, and really all of Star Trek. I want to welcome to the podcast Mike Johnson and Ryan Parrott, two Star Trek writers from IDW Publishing. It's great to have you guys on there. How are you doing, Mike? Very well. Thanks for having us on. It's good to talk with you. And Ryan, how about you? Very excited. Thanks for having us on. This is awesome. It's good to talk with you, and of course, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I love the comics. So, my understanding, I don't know, maybe Mike, you're the one to ask about this. The five-year mission is coming to an end is what's happening. You guys are doing your last of the Star Trek comics for the moment? Yeah, I don't know if there's been an official announcement, but it's in the previews that issue 60 will be the last issue of the ongoing series as it exists right now. Mm-hmm. That is far from the end of the Star Trek comics at IDW. I don't want to say anything more because I think mm-hmm. there is going to be an announcement at San Diego Comic-Con, okay. if I'm not mistaken, which is actually coming up really fast. It's mm-hmm. only uh, a little bit more than a month away. Mm-hmm. So 60 is going to wrap up. We have a special two-part story in issues 59 and 60 that bring in the original series crew mm-hmm. and we have them interact with the new timeline crew in an interesting way that hopefully people 
won't be expecting, but it's a two-issue celebration of the 50th anniversary of Trek. Very cool, because you've done a lot of those kinds of things. Of course, some of the best crossovers in all comics have been the Star Trek and crossovers. You, Mike, did Green Lantern with Star Trek. That's right, yeah. We had a great response to that one. And IDW's been great, as has DC, about being open to having fun with the franchises. Star Trek's crossed over with Legion of Superheroes, crossed over with Planet of the Apes, with Boom. And no, it's been really fun. I think there was the next-gen Doctor Who crossover. So I think fans really like it when they see the publishers being open to those fun events. Well, it's something we can't see anywhere else. You're never going to get... Well, you could, but these days, with the special effects being what they are, you could have the Legion in a movie or somewhere. Yeah, you are exactly right. It's one of the great things about comics. You're not going to get you're not going to get a Green Lantern Star Trek crossover movie, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We'll see, maybe Someday. in twenty years. Someday, <laughs> but for now, yeah, comics are the place to do it, and it's what makes them great. I'd like to point out that the Green Lantern crossover significantly hurt our writing process on all our books because every time we would sit down to work on something, I would just make Mike tell me what was going to happen in the next installment of the Green Lantern thing. That's true. <laughs> well, it ended true. so well. Normally, crossovers and stuff usually put everything back the way they were, but Star Trek Green yeah. Lantern did not do that, which makes me wonder. Well, I would love to see Star Trek Green Lantern too because you've got a whole new lips. I mean, fingers crossed. We left it open for a reason, so hopefully we'll have some good news on that front. Fingers oh, crossed. That'd be great, because it's already out in, in collected format, so... That's right. That for that, so that, that's good stuff. Now, Ryan, you're involved with Manifest Destiny. Yes. My understanding of it. Is that your contribution to all this good stuff? You're working with Mike on Manifest Destiny. You worked with Mike on Manifest Destiny, I should say. Yeah, well, Mike actually was nice enough to let me come aboard ongoing. I wrote two issues ongoing. I wrote issue 18 and 20. Luckily, he let me play in the sandbox there for a bit. And we had such a good time working on that that we were like, hey, we'll work on Starfleet Academy, which we just rounded up this year as well. And then he just keeps being nice to me and let me work on this with him as well. But I think Manifest is by far my favorite of all the Star Trek stuff I've worked on so far. It was just the most fun. We got to do everything we've always, I've always wanted to see in Star Trek, so it was great. So how did it come to be, Ryan? Or maybe, Mike, you should answer that. How did Manifest Destiny come? Because that's part of the celebration of Star Trek's 50th. That's right. It really happened because there was a spot in the schedule for a prequel to the next movie. We had done two different countdown series for the 2009 movie and countdown for Star Trek Into Darkness. And then there just wasn't a world where we were going to be able to do a prequel comic for Star Trek Beyond that wasn't going to spoil stuff in Star Trek Beyond. And I think people understand that when they see the movie. There wasn't really a way to prequelize it. So we thought, okay... Let's tell our own summer movie. Let's have an epic story in this four-issue miniseries that really blows the lid off in terms of the threat. And you were going to make this movie. The special effects would cost $2 billion. (laughs) And what could we do? And then the thinking was, well, let's use the Klingons. We sort of got a glimpse of them in Into Darkness. And you got a glimpse of them in the deleted scenes in the 2009 movie when they had Nero in prison. But this was a chance to really show them and really show what they can do. And the idea was to focus on a Klingon captain who was really worth this arch enemy role. And I got to say, Ryan really played the key role in developing what became Shotok, who is our white-skinned Klingon. Although people have started pointing out that his name is really Talk Show. Uh, so, <laughs> um, have they really? 
<laughs> yeah, somebody t- tweeted at me. They're like, you know, his name's Talk Show backwards. I was like, that was intended that way. That's um, yeah, we yeah. met that. Hold on. One of the things yeah. that Mike, when we first started the process, was that outside of Con and I can't even think of anybody else, honestly. There's not that many face villains in the Star Trek universe. It's a lot of races. You got the Klingons and the Cardassians and the Romulans, but you don't have a lot of one-on-ones. When we were trying to break down the series, I remember we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do, and sort of broke down Kirk, and we sort. Of, I've always sort of looked at Kirk as somebody who is basically like. What's the point of rules if it keeps you from doing the right thing? And that seems to be this whole theme in Into Darkness. So when we were looking at trying to create a Klingon counterpart, because Mike was like, hey, if we're going to do the five permission, let's see the equivalent of the Enterprise, the Klingon version of that. And so when we were looking at that, we were started to reverse engineer it. And so we looked at Klingons and thought, okay, if Kirk believes, but what's the point of rules of doing the right thing? Klingon could be, what's the point of honor if you lose? And so once we stumbled upon that, it backtracked everything for the character. And then it started lining up everything regarding who Devosh would be and then who the other people in the Klingon ship would be. And it was really fun. It was really cool to create a, like a mirror, a Klingon mirror. We had a lot of other characters we wanted to put in the story. We just ran out of time. But it was so much fun to build all these Klingon crew members and stuff. It was great. Because you realize what a rare thing that is. Normally in the novels and things like that, all you can use are the established characters. You can't create a new character. So here you are going and coming in and making a brand new Klingon. Yeah, and it was funny. I can't remember how Worthy Albino came from it, but I think it might have been an early sketch Angel sent that was like yeah. written on the top. Was it? Was that what happened? I can't remember. It was the, fi- it was the file name. Yeah. Um, Angel, he's in the Canary Islands, speaks Spanish, and I think he had put it in the file name and you hit on oh let's make him visually distinct and unlike any other Klingon and that fed into his character which was he never fit in in Klingon society but he was able to work his way up the ranks and he got away from Kronos and he got away from feeling like an outsider by being the captain of his own ship that goes out as Ryan was saying like the Enterprise except this ship goes to enslave new worlds and conquer new civilizations and his outcast status was then reflected visually where he didn't look like anybody else and he just looks cool he looks awesome in fact i'm looking at the cover to issue number three right now on how did this awesome shot of Shotok sitting in the damaged captain's chair on the bridge of the enterprise and he just looks he just looks threatening and he looks clever and devious and i hope we get an action figure one day (laughs) (laughs) well why not because the star trek figures always sell really well just because of star trek sometimes that's all you need to to sell stuff but there was one thing i wanted to ask you about ryan when i was reading the fourth issue which is really great there's a part where kirk is talking about the fact that the klingons are soldiers and starfleet is not and I thought that was really great. It was succinct. It was telling the fact that here they are explorers. We talked about that a little bit. A lot of the fun stuff with Mike was when we first sat down and when we started playing with the idea of doing a prequel comic, before we knew we weren't going to do it, we talked a lot about stuff that had in Inner Darkness that was in the background that maybe we could pull on. And one of the things Mike pointed out was if you look in Inner Darkness, everybody's wearing, there's a lot more uniform, there's a lot more military garb going on. There's the hats and the uniforms. And that seemed like after everything that had happened in the first movie, that you were seeing more of a militarization of Starfleet. Mm-hmm. So there was just something to play off that a little bit. It's fun because there's a lot of times we'll like, I get sort of caught up in certain directions, and Mike, who's obviously a lot more Star Trek than me, will always pull me back. <laughs> and this one in particular, well, yeah. But that's why I love working with you and why I wanted to work with you on this is because I'm going to talk about you in the third person. But Ryan has a great skill of diving into the deeper themes at work in the story. Hmm. And I think a lot of times I'm just like, what happens next? What happens next? And Ryan would always make sure it was rooted in – it really had meaning. It was rooted in – 
the different philosophies of the Federation and the Klingons. It was rooted in the characters of Kirk and Chotok and especially Bones. We wanted Bones to be a key player in this story. And we wanted to get to that point at the end of the fourth issue where Kirk and Bones aren't quite in sync on what's going to happen with the Klingons and what the future's going to hold. So, no, Ryan's a great writer in all facets, but definitely when it comes to grounding it in really getting to the heart of the story. Well, we did know from the beginning that we wanted to end it on a moment of loss as opposed to a moment of accomplishment. Obviously, they get the Enterprise back and everything, but there was that concept of losing Kai and having Kirk watch a lot of his crew die and being out there and wondering if you're going to go up against something as big and as devastating and as strong as the Klingons, and if you're playing by your own a different set of rules, is there any way that you can actually ever beat them? And that's what I liked about his confrontation with Shotok at the end. And Shotok even calls him on that. He's like, there's no way we are a military. We're going to go out there and just keep lambasting people. And if you're going to not play as hard as we are, eventually you're just going to give us opportunities to beat you. And I thought that's why if you look at the end issue two, Kirk actually says, today we have to be soldiers. And then at the end, he was like, I don't know if we can do it every day. I just thought there was something interesting about seeing how dangerous, realizing that the deck may be stacked against you, and is there any way to actually play a rig game, which I thought was kind of interesting. And even though we couldn't do a direct prequel to Beyond, we wanted to, at least thematically, from what we knew of where the movie was going, we wanted to be able to set up where Kirk is, and it's actually, you see it in the latest trailers for Beyond. I don't know if you've seen the Mm -hmm. most recent long trailer where Mm -hmm. Kirk and Bones are talking at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and Kirk's like, I joined on a dare. (laughs) <laughs> what exactly am I doing out here? And this was our way to be a prequel without being a prequel. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be cool to go back and for me and Ryan too and read this again after we've all seen the movie and hopefully knock on all the wood on the ship that uh, feels like thematically we were able to dovetail. Does it give you guys any direction about that? It doesn't sound like you've seen the movie. And, uh... No. So it sounds like you're guessing, sounds like. We do. We sort of have to guess because we're not involved with the production. So we have to do our best to anticipate. I mean, you know, Bob Orsi, who's a producer on the movie, has always been the comic godfather. Mm-hmm. He guides us as well. But it's really, it was sort of a guessing game on our part to figure out, okay, how can we get somewhere where it doesn't feel like it's going to be totally incongruous mm-hmm. if you pick this trade up? Because the trade paperback is hopefully going to be out if not before, then right around Comic-Con when the movie comes out. Mm -hmm. So we wanted people who see the movie to come and pick up this story and feel like, oh yeah, okay. It's not like everything's happy-go-lucky in the comic. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting because we hadn't seen some of the trailer stuff before we wrote, (laughs) obviously before we wrote into Manifest. And so then when we actually start seeing the trailer, I was like, huh, well, we're on sort of the same wavelength on a few things there. So that made me feel pretty good. Every time I see the trailer, I'm like, all right, they're stealing from us. Well, we should. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, how'd they get our comic script? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we should mention, too, that the movie's coming out on July 22nd. Just that's right. Somebody doesn't keep track of those good things. So my hope is that I'd love to see this trade come out before. Yeah, I hope so, too. I don't have an exact date. I know the plan, though, was to do a bi-weekly schedule for the single so that it could be ready for a trade. So uh, I think the plan is, I'm pretty sure the plan is to get it out either the week of Comic-Con, if not the week before. But it should be. And it's crazy. The movie's only a month away now, a month and a week. Jeez, that was quick. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really dying to see it. It's funny. When we write the comics, we rely on the first two movies to listen to the cadence of the characters and stuff. And I'm excited to get a third movie to work from Mm -hmm. and hear the actors read new lines and be in new situations. So Mm -hmm. 
I'm looking forward to it. Incidentally, just to show up that I'm a complete thief, I think the infant teleportation from the first issue is actually something that was an original idea for the Star Trek 2009 movie. I think I listened to the commentary and they said they were thinking about that being the way Kirk was born or something. So I was like, that would be fun oh, to try. Right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're stealing. We're just, we're just stealing blatantly. Well, if you're going to steal from, steal from the best, that's how we'll try it. to do those kinds of things. So that's really good. So, okay, Manifest Destiny then is completed and will hopefully be out in trade very shortly. It would help the comic stores if they had something that people can say, here's a new book just in time for the movie. People exactly. Can. And the other book that we hope is out is the other one that Ryan and I wrote together, which is Starfleet Academy, mm. which wrapped up in the spring. Yeah, say. yeah, right around. I think Manifest Destiny and and began right as Starfleet County ended. So that trade should be out right around the movie as well. We're hoping. Mm-hmm. So and that's something that I feel is more all ages thing. I mean, you can give Manifest Destiny to a kid. I would have eaten it up when I was <laughs> seven or eight. But mm-hmm. Starfleet Academy is well. I shouldn't say it's that thematically or tonally different. I mean, it, pretty intense stuff happens. Yeah, right, Ryan. Yeah, and it's definitely Academy. the same ballpark. Yeah, yeah. There's a little more humor. Yeah, a lot more humor and a lot less dead Klingons on the the whole of the Starship Enterprise. (laughs) So why do Starfleet Academy then? Because we've seen Starfleet Academy in comics and in novels and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. What did you guys bring to it that made it different? Well, I mean, for me, what was interesting was we talked about it a while, and Mike was like, you know, we we had been thinking about doing it for a while, and... It was cool when he was like, you know, kind of want to do it the way that they use Hogwarts, the way in the Harry Potter thing. There's this idea of like it's the one place that everybody we've seen in who's a you know Starfleet member has gone through. And they would have the same teachers and they would have the same experiences but different. And so there was something interesting about seeing – and also the fact that with the ongoing comic book being set on the five-year mission, we didn't have a window in what was going on back home, back with Earth and the Vulcans and all that stuff. So – when he pitched me the main character, who was Talon, who was somebody who came to Academy the day that Vulcan was destroyed, I was like, oh, that's awesome. That would be a great story because we could show her as an outsider in this brand new world and see the Academy through fresh eyes and meet a whole new group of people. And I thought that was just that's such a fun idea because I've also so many people, I just saw that thing on Twitter that there's like a whole Starfleet experience mm-hmm. that you can actually go and be a cadet. So people obviously yeah. have an appetite for the small details that you don't have time for in the movies. We actually show like a party. How do the cadets party? Where do they go to eat lunch? And all that stuff is filling out the world in a way that you can't do with the movies. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And we had an artist. We had an artist on that book, Derek Charm, who was perfect for it the way that Angel Hernandez was perfect for Manifest Destiny, where Derek really brought the characters to life and could create that party scene. I remember we, Ryan, we wrote up like all those things, like what could be in a future party? And we were like, is this even going to work? And Derek just nailed it. Yeah. And Sarah Gatos, who's our editor, who's the editor on all the Star Trek books at IDW, was really the one who pushed it through mm-hmm. to get Starfleet Academy to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, was a champion of really saying, okay, how can we build out the Star Trek universe that we've built up in the ongoing series and expand it to attract people maybe who wouldn't necessarily pick up the ongoing, but would pick up this cool, a little more youth skewing story mm-hmm. in Academy? Mm hmm. Very cool. So, yeah, that was a great book, too. Honestly, I think, Mike, you've written every one since issue number one, haven't you? Except for Ryan's two issues, because people come up to me and they're like, that was the best issue you wrote. (laughs) And I say, yeah, it was. It was the best (laughs) issue I wrote. Uh, (laughs) But Manifest and Academy wouldn't have happened if Ryan wasn't able to co-write them with me. So. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as a Deep Space Nine fan myself, I've got to mention that multi-part story you did with Q and the yeah. people from Terra Noir. I love that so much. It was so great to see uh, the DS9 folks interacting with the movie people, as well as bringing Q in. Because Q uh. did appear in DS9 one time, but yeah. he's mostly known with Next Generation of Voyager. So to bring in all this stuff together was really quite an interesting story. I really enjoyed reading. I thought it was terrific. Oh, thank you so much. That's great to hear. That's one of those things where, as you're writing it, your fingers are crossed. You're saying, oh, God, I hope this works. I hope I'm not embarrassing the characters. And again, like like you were saying earlier, this, this is a thing where it's not going to happen in the movies anytime soon, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Mm-hmm. The movies are trying to, as they should, strike their own way and show new things. And even when they do con, they try to do it in a new way. But so I don't know if you're going to see Q in the movies, mm-hmm. but comics were an opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And it just felt natural given that we're in an alternate timeline. Mm-hmm. And if I'm Q, it's like, oh, I'm going to go play over there. <laughs> I'm going to go see what these guys, oh, here's a different, I'm going to go play with this guy, Captain Kirk. And so it just worked out really well, and the chance to use DS9. I'm actually kind of a latecomer to appreciating DS9. I mean, mm. I, I grew up when I was a little kid on TOS reruns, and then I was really a TNG fanboy. Mm. I mean, I, I watched that. I remember watching it upstairs on a tiny little color TV mm. when it premiered on UPN, mm-hmm. I think it was, <laughs> in 1987. And... uh and then I watched the first couple seasons of DS9 and then just, I don't know, drifted away. Hmm. And then have come back to it in the last few years and really come to appreciate hmm. how much it pushed Star Trek in a new direction mm-hmm. and really evolved it in interesting ways and kind of daring ways. So that was kind of my love letter, my late love letter to DS9. Oh, very cool. Of course, got to ask you, Ryan, where do you fall in the scheme of things as far as what's your favorite Star Trek? Well, it's funny. I was sort of the same way with Mike. I grew up watching Next Generation. In fact, I actually watched The Inner Light last night. And it's so funny because my girlfriend was walking out. She's not a huge Star Trek fan. She's very sweet. She'll read my stuff. But as it was coming on, I was like, it's The Inner Light. And she was like, uh-huh. I'm like, you don't understand. It's the one where Picard gets with the, with the probe. And she was just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I was like, no. And then she called me later. She's like, are you crying? I'm like, no, I'm not crying. <laughs> But what I loved about DS9 is when I have gone back and watched it just recently, I just watched the episode the other night where Bashir and Dax go to the planet, which is suffering from the blight, and he stays to try and save them. And I was just like, I was, she came in again, and I was like trying to explain the whole thing to her. And what I realized that I loved about DS9 was it came right before you started to see this really serialization of television. Mm-hmm. And it was the first show, I think, of all the Next Generation ones that really decided that it was going to try and tell you like a very long-form storytelling as opposed yeah. to – and which was much much more episodic and it's so fun to because i'll just periodically watch different episodes and it's like it's amazing to see how different cisco is from season two to the very end like you once you got the goatee everything got really cool but like it's just amazing how much the characters evolved so much more than i think on other shows so and i thought they ended that show in an incredibly really well done i mean i felt epic at the end him going off to join the i'm i'm spoiling it for anybody who's on here but with him going off with the, uh, the prophets and everything i just thought it was great ending for such a show that felt like it was designed to be a whole arc when I know it wasn't. And I just think that's really impressive, especially in that day and age. I'll tell you something that not everybody knows. I, I'm a Niner. I'm a DS Niner. I, I fell in love with the show during the first two hours, and I loved the show from then on. There was a, a commercial that came out before DS9 aired. It, and one of the things it talked about, an untested crew, a part of space away from everything else, kind of like way, way away from everything, all this stuff. 
And then when you get to season seven, the commercial came on and said, an accomplished crew, you know, the, the, the center of the galaxy. And also, you could see this huge change from even the very first episode all the way through until the seventh season. There was this massive change. And That's cool. It was so different. It was unlike anything else that was, you know, and now it's common. Everybody looks at it and says, oh, yeah, we do that all the time now. But DS9, it was a real challenge. It was something that was unusual. So, anyway, that's why I like that. I love the fact that you did a multi-parter on that in those issues with DS9 in it, Mike. So yeah, and, and, and sort of trying to give everybody at least a little bit of screen time, page time, mm-hmm. I guess you'd call it, page mm-hmm. time. And actually have fun with them, too. CBS and Paramount, our partners there, uh, John Van Sitters. And Reese Kessler really let me have fun with it within reason. So if it was logical, to pardon that, but uh, <laughs> that Worf, that the Klingons would conquer Earth at some point <laughs> and that Worf would be a chancellor there, <laughs> being able to do that kind of thing was really fun. And have Ducat be the big bad guy felt right. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. He's become one of my favorite Trek villains. <laughs> so being able to play in that playground a little bit yeah again it's like that's something you can only do in comics Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very good well you bring up something i I gotta ask you because one of the things that paramount has always done over the years is they require approval of the scripts before you think uh when dc had them you know peter david always retched about how they would tinker with the scripts and stuff but it doesn't sound like that was what was happening with you guys did they give you a lot more latitude as far as that goes when you guys are doing it like on manifest destiny on the comic yeah i think it speaks to we have a great team between sarah john and risa we've been working together for a few years now i mean i've been john and risa have been working with since gosh 2009 mm-hmm. and then even more so in 2011 when we started the ongoing series. So there's just a trust factor that's built up. Mm-hmm. So it's given me a sense of what is what they'll be cool with and what works for them. Mm-hmm. And I think they've established enough trust that they know I'm not going to screw it up too badly. <laughs> so I think it's just having a small team. And I've you know worked in other licensed situations where you don't have it. And there's just a lot of cooks in the kitchen and hoops to jump through. Mm-hmm. But when you have just a team that not only trusts each other, but it's like working together, mm-hmm. and then you get the best product mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. You get the best result of the work. And then r- when Ryan started working, it was like, as soon as, you know, when he wrote those two issues, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this guy. I got lucky. I think that's why I liked so much as a reader with the Q Gambit was that you kind of earned that. Like a lot of people might have tried to pull that, I think, earlier to try and. Mm-hmm. And I love that you waited for such a long time because I think that gave you the freedom to tell that big story that you were able to tell. Yeah, and like correct. for me, when I came in with Manifest and Starfleet Academy was like they already trusted Mike enough so that I think if Mike brings something to the table, it's not going to be crazy. And then I still get so, shot down. I do get okay. shot down. I do suggest <laughs> stuff that's like, in fact, I feel like there was something we wanted to do with Manifest that they wouldn't let us do. I'll have to think about it. So, we'll have to do another podcast. Don't, don't get in trouble because, you know, Par- Paramount is... Don't get fired. No, no, don't do that because we like what you're doing and we don't want you Thank to... Thank you. have to move on to other stuff. But you do yeah. do Transformers, I notice, among other things. But as far as, like, doing this book, I wanted to touch also on the recent four-parter that just concluded having to do with Spock. Yes. Which was really a touching thing because, you know, it was clearly 
an homage to Leonard Nimoy and his status among the fans. And yeah. I, I really loved it, especially when you get to the end and, and Spock is standing there and he's basically saying, this is going to be my last home. You know, yeah. just a, a real touching thing. And the, the way you wrote the dialogue, I could hear Nimoy's voice saying all that oh, stuff. Oh, that's great. So oh, I was so real glad that touched. resonated with you. Yeah, oh, yeah no. that was that's the, the story, and those were the panels that probably, I don't want to say weighed on me. That's not the right, it's not quite the right word. I mean, I'm a writer. I should know what the right word is. But they're the panels that I really wanted to make sure sounded right. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just he's such an iconic actor, an iconic character, that I think we all know what he sounds like. We all hear those rhythms in our hearts. And in that way, it was not easy to write, but it was like it was comfortable. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just wanted to make sure I do it justice. So I'm really thankful to hear that it resonated with you. And the idea was, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. I was always, since 2009, I've been sort of obsessed with this idea of like, where does Spock prime? Where does the older Spock go mm-hmm. after Quinto and Nimoy have that scene at the end of 2009? Mm-hmm. So we know he's going to help out the other Vulcans, but what does that look like? And then, again, John and Risa at CBS and Paramount gave me the green light to go and explore that. And it felt like the right time to do it as we're wrapping up the ongoing series. Mm-hmm. Oh. Now, I've got to, of course, ask, this all leads into the last two parties that you mentioned where you've got the, the Shatner, Nimoy, Kirk, Spock versus yes. the movie stuff. Was that a challenge writing that? Because, you know, you've got yeah. to... yeah. <laughs> no, you've got to get them. You can't have them bleed over into each other, and they're very no. different characters. I mean, on the one hand, it's really fun because every so often, like every six months, I do like a TOS binge mm-hmm. just to kind of get back to the heart of Trek. So I kind of had a refresher of the cadence of those actors with those characters. And then, yeah, you'll see, I don't want to spoil the story. You'll see the story is not quite like they beam over and shake hands. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a trick to the story and the the adventure that comes to involve both crews. But that was a tricky one. And I have to say, I can't end this podcast without shouting out to my partner on the ongoing series, Tony Shastine, who's mm-hmm. just the greatest, not just a partner for doing comics together, but in terms of track, like anything I throw at him, any kind of alien world, any kind of environment, any kind of situation that the characters are in. Tony just nails it, and you know it's one thing to be really good at likenesses of the of the actors, mm-hmm. but it's another thing to be good at likenesses of the actors within the action that's taking place. Because mm-hmm. I put them in situations where there's not really photo reference from the two movies, mm. and Tony just Tony just nails it. He nailed it with Spock with the legacy of Spock story. Mm-hmm. Like those pages don't have the same impact if the art isn't fantastic, mm-hmm. and he really sold whatever words I wrote. And then he had he had a lot of fun with drawing the TOS crew in this two-part story. And we were saying, like, man, how cool would it be if we just did a TOS ongoing where we just told lost <laughs> stories of the, mm-hmm. of the original crew? But, but you'll get two issues of Tony drawing mm-hmm. Shatner and, and Nimoy and the gang. So uh, cool. I, I hope people will like it. Well, there's a great – the covers are great. You've got a, a – you know, you've got – on the first cover, you've got the Shatner – and then on the others you've got the movie verse but the two yeah, covers yeah they join up yeah those covers yeah which i really love when i saw that i went oh that is the coolest thing of course you realize you're doing another crossover here you're crossing star trek and that's star trek. my that's my secret you just, <laughs> you just yeah 
my they secrets out. They said it out. would never happen. <laughs> they said it would never happen. And it's just fun. That's sort of like throwing stuff together. It's like chemistry, just seeing what happens. So. Gosh, can't wait to see it. It's going to be great. It's going to be one of those two-parters that you just can't I wait for the so. second part. So it's going to nice. be great. Terrific. So now you said that the future will be announced soon, so we won't worry about those kinds of things. We'll get announcements hopefully at San Diego as to what's going to move forward. But what are you guys up to? Let's talk with you, Ryan. Are there projects you're working on that we should be aware of? Yeah, I'm doing my first career-owned book with Aftershock Comics, which I'm excited about doing. That should be coming out sometime sometime uh, with this artist named Omar Francia, who's amazing. So that's been really fun. It's my first time writing by myself, which is very weird. I don't have Mike to rely on, which sucks. (laughs) I'm used to like sort of like that. Thing, sort of the panel descriptions, and he'll be like, "All right, his, uh, I'm going to fix this all for you." Like, Thanks, You're man. free now. I know, yeah, free. We're all up on myself, but I'm doing that. And then I know there's some hopes that maybe we might get to do some more academy, which would be great because I know we've already talked about that, so that would be great. Cool. And of course, I love Aftershock Comics. I think that's a great company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're awesome. It's just a very young upstart, and they they don't care about the rules. They're gonna break all the rules, <laughs> <laughs> which is fun because it's something like person like me who's been reading comics for years. You know the rules. The moment it varies from that, you go what? What yeah. they're doing something different? And I really, and that's one of the things I love about their books. I think that's just terrific. Hail stuff. Hydra. Yeah. <laughs> we won't get in. Let's not get into that. I don't know. It's a whole other podcast. Now, Mike, how about you? Of course, you're a franchise guy. Uh, you do Transformers I'm, and Star I'm Trek. I'm Star Trek all the time right now. Oh. Thank goodness. Okay. Uh, it's the best job in the world. Also, we're revving up to do another series of this book called Eight that mm-hmm. I did at Dark Horse with mm-hmm. Rafa Albuquerque. Yeah. It came out over the last year. Yeah, that was great. Story. Yeah, so we're talking about doing another set of that. But for now, I'm just blessed to be working in Starfleet. Can't complain. Great, super duper. Because you know, you realize how many writers would love to be able to to make that. Oh, I know, I know. (laughs) That's one. I just want to end up by asking you guys. I mean, what's been the reaction as far as doing the the stuff that you did? Has it been heartening? Because Star Trek fans sometimes we can be some of the most critical people around. (laughs) Have you guys? uh, What's been the reaction to all the the Star Trek that you guys have been generating? Maybe Mike will start with you. how about I'll go first because Mike's okay. got more to talk about. So okay. um, I will say the coolest thing about the manifest reaction has been reading some of the reviews and like hearing people dig into stuff that I didn't even realize we were talking about or even better hitting on themes that we knew we were like itching at. But them actually have them pick it up was kind of awesome. Like I was really impressed at how deep people dig into Star Trek. I think that comes from just having to watch the show for so many years. That's just what the show commands of some of its audience. But to see them do that in comics is pretty cool because I've written some other stuff that never gets that level of dissection. And so that was awesome. And with Manifest, I've only read good reviews. I've only read people who seem to really enjoy it. And that was that was kind of cool because I, I, it felt like the one thing that sort of was the closest that ever came to something that was that coming out of my brain. Like I was, but I, this is what I wanted it to be. And so for people to like that was, it was just a nice feeling. Terrific, that's terrific. Okay, and Mike, you? Yeah, it's been really gratifying, and I feel really fortunate that people have liked the stuff I've done. I mean, not always, and I really appreciate the fact that Trek fans, you know, of which Ryan and I are, but we're behind the curtain, so to hear from Trek fans things that they didn't like or things they want more of or things they want less of is really valuable. But knock on wood, we've been lucky that fans have really responded to what we've done, both in things like Academy, where we're introducing new characters that hopefully feel like they belong in the franchise, Mm -hmm. 
and in Trek lore. But then also, you know, we had a great response with, as Ryan said, with Manifest, where people were like, "These are the Klingons. These are Klingons. These are the Klingons I want to see. Thank you for this." <laughs> that was really gratifying because that's really what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That's great, because you guys have been doing a great job, and I can't wait. You know, I have absolutely no idea what you guys are going to do next as far as Star Trek goes, but I'm really looking forward to it. As long as there's going to be more, I'm going to be very happy. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. So, gosh, I really hate to just say live long and prosper, but I hope you say it. Live long and prosper, you guys. Live long and prosper to you. And make more Trek. We need more Trek. We do. Indeed. We're about to get a lot more track. It's good. Gonna be good. I mean, in the show and movie, and it's going to be good. Good. It's going to be good. That's a wrap for this episode. Be sure to be back next week when we'll have more interviews and other good things. But until then, keep reading your comics.